0: Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise in Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's start today in Seattle, where a brave 11-year-old is the sole survivor of her murderous father. Let's back up a bit to 2019, where Salvatore Raguso was suffering mental collapse. He was a self-proclaimed victim who was wearing a T-shirt with the handwritten phrase, I have PTSD, scrawled on the back. He sends his ex-wife Lana a message saying he's suicidal, and he states that she needs to keep, for the evening, the two kids they share. When she arrives at her apartment to check on him, Salvatore is standing on the roof of the six-story building. He has a rope tied around his neck, which he has anchored to the building, and then he threatens to jump if the responding officers get too close. Now, his mental instability had led him to setting fire to Lana's apartment in the Queen Anne area of Seattle. And smoke billowed out of the windows while water from the sprinkler system poured out of the building's second floor balcony. The chaos forced more than 100 people to evacuate that apartment building. And during the melee, police tried to engage with Salvatore, but he continued to threaten suicide. Finally, After several hours long standoff, police were able to apprehend Salvatore and no one was hurt during the fire, but investigators did find a pile of miscellaneous objects on the kitchen counter that had been set on fire by either a handheld lighter or possibly with an electrical hot plate used for cooking. And the damage to the unit was minimal, but more concerning was that Salvatore had taken the time to remove the smoke detectors, and had also covered the sprinklers in the apartment with duct tape. All right, for starting the fire, Salvatore was charged with assault, domestic violence, and three types of first-degree arson. He was also barred from contacting his ex-wife, Lana, and as well, he was required to surrender all of his weapons. Now, while awaiting the trial portion of his charges in 2019, Salvatore was admitted to the Fairfax Behavioral Health Now, that's the state of Washington's largest private psychiatric facility. And it seems Salvatore voluntarily admitted himself to the facility after experiencing paranoid delusions and grandiose beliefs. All of this is according to the King County District Court records. Now, those records also indicate he was formally diagnosed with schizophrenia. Now, eventually, Salvatore was referred to the county's Regional Mental Health Court to handle his arson charges. So the purpose for having criminal charges go this route is that the defendant will be offered therapeutic support during his mental health challenges. Now, during this time, Salvatore is back and forth from detention because he breaks the rules of house arrest and then he also fails to appear for a court hearing. But eventually, the case is moved back through the court system, and in early 2020, Salvatore was charged with second-degree reckless burning and malicious mischief. So, you know, that's quite a decrease in charges, but I'm sure his mental health played heavily in that decrease. Now, the courts placed him on probation for two years, and he routinely attended therapeutic court hearings. The legal system hooked Salvatore up with a therapist and a psychiatrist, as well as peer counseling opportunities. And court records show he was prescribed medication for his diagnosed schizophrenia. Then in April of 2021, so that's about two years after the fire was set by Salvatore. Well, he goes on and he petitions the court for two things. One, he wants the no-contact order lifted between him and his ex-wife, and two, he requested couples counseling because, in his words, he would like to live with her again. Well, understandably, court records show that his probation office had concerns about the reintroduction of contact between Salvatore and his ex-wife, but they punted the request back to the courts where, just one month later, the no-contact order was lifted. Then, just a few short months later, Salvatore completed his court-ordered mental health classes, which means, from this point forward, Salvatore gets to choose if he continues his mental health care. All right, from here, it appears that Salvatore and his ex-wife Lana Stewart reunited, moving into the Wallingford neighborhood of Seattle. Neighbors said the couple would work in the yard together And they were quiet. They just didn't disturb others. They also said the children, 11-year-old Lulu, 7-year-old Sebi, and 4-month-old Valentina, would be in the yard with their parents and also playing with Rosie, the family dog. So, whether it was the lack of continued mental health care or possibly mounting stressors that just weren't managed, Salvatore broke last week when he again set fire to the family home. As the flames engulfed the two-story home, Lulu, the 11-year-old, bravely jumped from the second-story bedroom, falling 16 feet. She then ran to get help for her siblings, her mother, and her dog, but she was too late. When firefighters eventually soaked the flames in embers, they tried to enter the house through the front door, but it had been barricaded from the inside. When they entered through a window, they found Lulu's mother, Lana, dead from multiple sharp force injuries, and her little brother and infant sister were dead from smoke inhalation, and the family dog had also perished from smoke inhalation. Well, Salvatore, he was dead as well in what is now being called a multiple murder-suicide plot. Now, Lulu's aunt, Andrea Stewart Sloniker, said that Lulu is a talkative and loving girl who always put her family first. She explained that as Lulu matured, she had become more aware of her complicated family situation and that she often found herself in a protective and nurturing role. Adrea said she isn't surprised at all that Lulu was brave enough to jump from the window to try to get help for her family. And in a Facebook post, Adrea wrote the following, what began as a slow mental spiral suddenly went out of control before Salvatore would consent to receiving professional help again. She also wrote that she plans to adopt Lulu and provide her private tutoring to catch her up to her appropriate age level. So let's just take a moment to remember the family members. Adrea said in a family statement that Lana will be remembered by her affectionate, talkative, and nurturing personality. One of Lana's favorite things in life was being a mother. And Sebi, the seven-year-old, well, he kept everyone on their toes because he would never hold still. He was an active, carefree child who loved to laugh and be goofy. And the sweet four-month-old Valentina, well, the statement says that although her life was short-lived, she brought light to the entire family situation. Now, the statement concludes with these thoughts. We want everyone to know that even though this was an extremely tragic situation, Lulu will now be able to live her life to her fullest potential. Lana, Sebi, Valentina, and their dog, Rosie, will be missed, but forever will live in our hearts. I know I have given this warning before, but if you or a loved one is experiencing domestic violence you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233, or just go online to thehotline.org. Remember, all contact is confidential and the hotline is available 24 seven and in 170 languages. All right, guess what? Another update to the eight passengers YouTuber, Ruby Frankie story. Kay, I promised you more would happen, and of course it has in this bizarre case. Remember that this is the woman who, along with her business partner, Jody Hildebrand, have each been accused of six counts of felony child abuse against Ruby's two youngest children, 12-year-old Russell and 9-year-old Eve. Kay, it all came out when Russell escaped from Jody's home in southern Utah and ran to a neighbor's home for help. And you can listen to the 911 call placed by the helpful neighbor in last week's episode, I also told you in the last episode that in a family court hearing, Ruby claimed her son had sexually abused his siblings and neighbors. Well, now the family is speaking out. In an exclusive interview with the Daily Mail, Ruby's sister-in-laws, Cynthia and Jennifer Frankie, say they believe the abuse allegations against Ruby and that they are shocked and sickened by the turn of events. Cynthia, okay, this is Kevin, and remember, Ruby's husband is Kevin, so... This is Kevin's sister-in-law. She's married to Kevin's brother, Alan. Okay, you following that? So Cynthia told the Daily Mail that she believes that Ruby is putting the blame on her two kids to validate what she has been doing to them. She also thinks Ruby will say or do anything at this point to save herself. Cynthia also said that she doesn't think Ruby should be allowed bail and that she believes all of the allegations that have been made against Ruby. All right, now, Jennifer, this is Kevin's sister-in-law also, but she's married to his brother, Aaron. So Jennifer said she never really liked Ruby, saying she always thought she was better than everyone. She also said if you look up narcissist in the dictionary, there will be a picture of Ruby. Jennifer especially believes the allegations of withholding food from the six kids, she recalled a time when Kevin brought the kids over for dinner at her and Aaron's home. She said that after dinner, her own children grabbed a snack to eat. And of course, they offered some snacks to their cousins. And she said Ruby would not allow them to have the snacks. She said Ruby then looked at her and said, I can't believe you allow your kids to just run amuck in your house. Well, Jennifer said she told Ruby that it was her house and her kids and she would do what she wanted. Now, the two women also said that when Ruby began the Eight Passengers YouTube channel, that the rest of the Frankie family did not want to have anything to do with it. They worried that the children wouldn't properly be cared for if the filming was happening. And when asked about the sexual abuse allegations that Ruby made against her own child, Jennifer said she didn't believe a word of it. In her words, she said, I don't believe her kids were the abusers that she claims. I don't think her children molested anyone. Now, the two sisters in law also addressed the relationship with Kevin and Ruby in the Daily Mail interview. And I'm just going to read you what Jennifer had to say about it because truly she just sums it up best. She said about the business venture between Jody and Ruby it was a cult. Kevin was in a men's group at Connections. He had a checklist of what he needed to do to be better. And if he did, they would praise him. And if he didn't, they would chastise him. All right. She then went on to say, when Jody moved into the family's Springville marital home, one of the first things she did was separate Ruby and Kevin. It was almost like the movie War of the Roses. Ruby was living on one side of the house and Kevin was living on the other. Kevin couldn't talk to Ruby unless Jody was present. Okay, in case you missed that, Jody moved into the couple's Springville home to help them with marriage counseling. I talk about invasive marriage counseling. All right, Jennifer then confirmed that Kevin eventually moved out of the couple's Springville, Utah home in July of last year. And that he was living in a townhome nearby with a minder from connections that would stay in the townhome with Kevin to watch over him. Okay, that's another bizarre, a minder, more like a babysitter for a grown man. And Jennifer also said that she has had constant contact with the oldest child of Ruby and Kevin. So Shari Frankie is 20 years old and celebrated when her mother was arrested. Jennifer said Shari was banned from talking to her father by the workers at Connections. Jennifer said Shari said her father would not take her calls or answer her emails. Shari also said that Kevin felt like he was a horrible person and that Ruby and Jody had brainwashed him into believing he was bad. Jennifer said she has known Kevin since she was 11 years old and that she just feels bad for him. She said that he is a good guy who has been brainwashed into moving out and abandoning his family. And then she also says she has questions about why Kevin didn't go back to his kids. She feels that they have yet to be told the entire story when it comes to the bizarre actions of Ruby and Jody. Okay, wow, that was a lot. A lot to unpack from the women married to Kevin's brothers. But remember, Ruby is just one half of this equation. What about Jody? Well, in an interview with KUTV2 in Salt Lake City, Jesse Hildebrandt, okay, that is Jody's niece, says she was abused by Jody when she stayed with her as a teenager more than a decade ago. Here's what she had to say in the interview. The things that I experienced while living with Jody, I experienced being tied. I experienced being duct taped. I experienced being blindfolded. I experienced severe isolation. I experienced severe emotional, spiritual, and psychological abuse. I experienced being told I shouldn't be around other people, being told that I was dangerous to be around. People were afraid of me to the point where I was afraid of myself. Well, then Jesse recalled that while in Jody's care, she at times would be isolated for 12 hours a day, and that they were even once required to sleep outside in the snow. Jesse said Jody also accused her of being a sex addict and that she was addicted to masturbation. Okay, Jesse also said the following I've never met Ruby. But the things that she is saying and regurgitating are very, very familiar to me. The philosophies and the therapeutic modalities that she is using are Jody's, and these are not new. This is a pattern. Well, Jesse then went on and told KUTV2 that the police were contacted when Jesse was 16, but the claims of abuse were not believed by authorities. Both the eight passengers and connections YouTube pages have been removed by YouTube from the platform. Now, the jail stay for the two women has not been uneventful. It has been reported that Jody was hospitalized with a life-threatening event, but there's been no specifics given. And it has also been reported that Ruby's been ill for several days while she has been incarcerated. Neither woman has been granted bail, and their next hearing is scheduled for September 21st. And neither woman has entered a plea in regards to the six felony child abuse allegations. And as I said in the last episode, this is absolutely not over. If you want a more in-depth telling of Ruby's bizarre and potentially abusive parenting techniques and her new business venture with Jody, you can listen to episode 37 of Rise and Crime that came out a little more than a week ago. All right. How about something lighter to end this episode? Let's head to Arizona, where Jimmy Juber purchased a dark blue 2023 Denali 10 months ago. And last week, thieves disabled his OnStar feature within the Denali, and then they stole that truck. But it's not what you think. They didn't get in and drive the truck away. Instead, the bold thieves used a tow truck in the early morning hours to hoist the expensive pickup and make their getaway. All of it happening in about two minutes time. And this just brought up thoughts in my mind. It's like a pit crew at Daytona, except it's North Phoenix and the pit crew is a bunch of criminals. Well, Jimmy's neighbor's doorbell camera captured the theft, and it might be the only piece of evidence that the thieves left behind. So you're probably wondering, did they eventually find the truck or track down the thieves? Well, they did find the truck, or at least what's left of it. Just a day after it was stolen, police recovered the cab of the truck with a shattered windshield, and then not much else. All of the other parts were gone. And Jimmy said he felt even more violated because he expected the thieves to take the truck apart, but he didn't expect them to ravage the GMC that much. And Jimmy has accepted the fact that his truck isn't coming back, but he's more broken up about the sentimental items left inside the truck the thieves got away with a shovel from his late father's time in the U.S. Army and his childhood wagon that he was fixing up for his granddaughter. Jimmy said the truck can be replaced, but those items can't. Well, and as far as the car thieves, Phoenix police say they are following all leads and are also working with other cities to see if similar crimes are occurring there. On a personal note, I have a friend whose RV camp trailer was stolen in a similar fashion. A person backed right up to the hitch, attached the trailer, and off the criminals went. So I did a quick search to see what RV and auto owners can do to prevent such thefts. And truly, some of the best advice I found was to park strategically. Choose areas where a tow truck can't quite back in to steal your auto, or park something in front of the RV hitch to prevent someone from just hooking on and driving away. All right, that's your Monday episode of Rise and Crime. I always appreciate your case suggestions. Again, one of the cases today was from one of your suggestions, so thank you so much. And of course, your five-star reviews are always welcome. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok, and also please subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently.